As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hello and welcome to another edition of Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. So, Joe, on last week's episode, we were talking about money, and I rather glibly said that money was the thing that everybody wanted. But what if I told you today that we are going to speak with someone who turned down $8.5 million? I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe that such <laughs> a uh, such a person would exist or that a person would do such a thing. Well, uh, we are going to talk to someone who turned down $8.5 million. That person is Eric Ben-Artsy. You might remember him from some recent headlines. He uh, used to work at Deutsche Bank as a risk manager and basically blew the whistle on the way the bank was accounting for a big position in derivatives. Since then, Deutsche Bank got fined by the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., and part of that fine goes out to pay the whistleblowers. And Eric was just one of, um, well, I think in the end, there were two of them. So we're going to talk to him today about what it's like to be a whistleblower and, crucially, why he turned down all that money. This is so fascinating and surprising. I don't want to do any more intro. I think we should get right into it. All right. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So I guess to begin, maybe we should start with your career at Deutsche Bank, sort of ground zero for where this all started. Tell us what you were doing at the bank. Um, my job as a risk officer uh, was to um, oversee the risks, the market risks in the trading portfolio. We oversaw uh, many of the um, businesses uh, that the uh, bank uh, was in, both in uh, New York and London. Um, in particular, I was looking at the credit derivatives portfolio, and that's, uh, that's, where, the, uh, that's where the problems uh, came up. So uh, tell us, when did you join Deutsche Bank, and what was your first indication that, in your view, something was wrong with the way derivatives were being priced internally? Um, I joined uh, Deutsche Bank in the summer of 2010, and I had uh, quite a bit of experience before that in credit derivatives, both uh, 
through my work in Citibank and also um, at, um, at Goldman Sachs. Uh, so um, the the assignment to the credit derivatives portfolio was um, was pretty natural, and uh, I had experience with with the models, with with the products involved. You know, gradually as I as I learned more and more about the portfolio at Deutsche Bank, um, I uh, I had more and more uh, concerns, and as I raised those concerns uh, with my managers, with with accountants, and eventually uh, I went to the hotline. Uh, the responses that I got uh, were more and more alarming to me. So walk us through the problems that you discovered, because I, I know it can get a little bit complex, but there are some potentially big numbers involved here. And our and our listeners like uh, complex details, so you don't have to be afraid to uh, get wonky. Okay, great. So essentially, um, the uh, the credit derivatives in, in question were uh, synthetic credit derivatives. These were uh, tranches on um, on portfolios of CDS. Um, initially, uh, I, I was doing some stress testing, and and um, I was tasked with uh, assigning uh, risk numbers to uh, to this portfolio. I wasn't quite aware of what the products uh, underlying uh, that were actually in the portfolio what they were. Uh, my assumption was that the, these were regular tranches, and. Uh, at some point, when I started asking questions, all of a sudden I realized that I was looking at leveraged tranches, leveraged super seniors, as they were called. These were more exotic, more risky trades that were worth less. Uh, if you think of it as as an insurance contract, then uh, a leveraged tranche, if you buy insurance in a leveraged way, you have far less protection than if you have a regular tranche where you're protected uh, for the entire amount of your portfolio. So uh, one one analogy that people seem to like is uh, with a uh, um, parking lot full of uh, full of cars. If you're a car dealer and you have a used car uh, uh, parking lot full full of uh, full of uh, used Kias, you know you could argue about what kind of uh, values those those uh, used Kias have. You can say they're worth five thousand or ten thousand dollars, but you can't pretend uh, that these are new Ferraris. And essentially, I realized that this is what the bank was doing. It was misrepresenting uh, the trade in its portfolio. And I also began to realize just how huge this portfolio is. Essentially, Deutsche Bank uh, owned the majority of this market. So as as I was raising my concerns and getting um, answers that made less sense, I also got answers that that made me more concerned about the the amounts that we're talking about, the... uh, the hidden losses, or if you will, the inflated valuations. So back in the deep, dark days of the financial crisis, and 2010 wasn't that far off from those, uh, understating those potential losses would have meant a big, big flattering of Deutsche Bank's bottom line, right? Basically saving it on having to reserve lots and lots of extra capital. Absolutely. And, um, and so in 2010, initially, when I, raised the, when I raised my concerns, I thought we were talking about, um, uh, about potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. And once I asked more and more questions, I realized that this was, you know, we're talking about billions. Uh, so, so, yes, these, these were very large numbers. Uh, I want to get to the part where you sort of blow the whistle and raise external issues. But I just want to get a little more specific on the specific problem that you saw with the way that the derivatives were being priced. Because obviously, pricing of derivatives and portfolio of derivatives is complex, and people apply different models and techniques. But 
What was the fundamental difference in how you saw the products and how they should be valued versus how they were being valued uh, by the bank? Uh, so I think that's that's a very good point. That I wasn't arguing that a specific model should be used. There are, there are many many models that could potentially be used, and all of them had advantages and disadvantages. So you could argue about what the actual value was of these trades. Uh, that's there's no doubt there, but you couldn't pretend like they that you couldn't pretend that they were not leveraged. Mm. The standard valuation, uh, the correct sort of financial engineering valuation of a levered super senior or a levered tranche, is as a regular tranche minus an option. Essentially, uh, you sold an option to the counterparty to walk away from the trade. That's that's really what the what the uh, uh, what the trade uh, the way to correctly value this trade. So what the value of this option is, well, you can argue over what that is. You can argue about – you can right. take different models that would give you different numbers. What Deutsche Bank did was it, it just said that these options were worth zero. And other banks at the time were using the gap option, right? They were valuing it like they could lose all the collateral because the counterparties walk away. Uh, absolutely. So so there were there were definitely models used, being used in other banks. And um, – when, when the issue was raised that, you know, that the models, that there's no model that, that does a good job, that, that all the models are unstable, uh, well, the answer to that is if, if, you can't, if you can't value this option, you have, to, you have to apply the worst case, not the best case. Especially when, when you're looking at the underlying swap, you're, you are quite happy to take a maximal valuation. In other words, the leveraged super seniors, their, their value is equal to the swap, which is marked to market, left the option, which is also marked to market. Deutsche Bank took the, was happy to take the positive marked to market on the, on the swap, uh, which is also a derivative in itself, but it, but it just said, well, I don't know how to value the, I, well, value the option is, is hard, so I'm just going to mark it at zero. That, that was clearly dishonest. I should say that, that you know, when I spoke with risk managers in other areas, uh, this seems to, seemed to be uh, a consistent problem throughout the, uh, throughout the uh, trading book. As I was raising concerns about this particular portfolio, which was probably the, the, the largest, I also began to realize that this, there was something uh, more widespread, more systematic here, that it seemed as though the bank was really uh, operating on little or no reserves for, for many trades that, that should have been reserved for. And uh, it seemed as though it was trying to, to sort to inflate, inflate its financials. That was my impression. So... After you um, start looking at the book and talking to other people, walk us through exactly what happened when you um, brought this to the attention of your managers. You mentioned making the call on the hotline. I imagine there was quite a process that you had to go through before you got to the hotline part or the SEC part. Uh, yes, I, I talked with you know with the line of command and within the risk management uh, department. I, I went to the um, to I spoke with with managers and other adjacent areas, model validation, so other gatekeepers, if you will. I ended up going to the accountants, the, the finance uh, division, so these are the people who are ultimately responsible for the financials for the statements. And that's really where, you know, I, I was expecting throughout this, this process that somewhere down the line, somebody is going to adjust for this leverage. Somebody is going to adjust for the fact that, you know, Deutsche Bank sold a lot, you know, options on a huge portfolio that were being valued at zero. Somewhere there's going to be some some accounting for that, and the accounting was just. It, it seemed as though eventually, when I talked to the accountants, they said no, it's just valued as a, as a regular swap, and that's when I went to the hotline. 
So how did the conversations actually go? Because I can imagine it must be pretty awkward if you go up to people and you say, hey, I think that um, Deutsche Bank's potential losses on its LSS portfolio could be massively, massively bigger than we're accounting for. Um, yeah, so so absolutely, the answers were, were evasive. People, some people didn't want to talk about it. Others gave answers that were just uh, that were just wrong. I think maybe just because they didn't know, because these trades are pretty pretty complex. Anybody who wasn't who didn't really specialize in it uh, mm-hmm. could easily misunderstand. You, you could tell them that you, you could you could run into a situation where they don't really understand what they're talking, what, what what how to value these trades. So some of the answers I, I got. I assumed were just uh, uninformed answers rather than uh, attempts to hide. But when I talked to people who who did understand, the the answers were clearly evasive, and and uh, you know was like political were used uh, when 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 I asked about it. Uh, so all of these were red flags to me. All right, I want to uh, get to the point where you begin the process of. Um you know, calling the hotline and becoming a whistleblower. First, I want to take a quick moment for a word from our sponsor. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. And we're back with Eric Ben Artsy, uh, former risk analyst at Deutsche Bank and a whistleblower. So walk us through the process. You talk about calling the hotline when you see that there's this major unresolved issue with the valuing of these derivatives. Walk, how does that actually work? Walk us through what the process is like becoming a whistleblower, essentially. So um, the hotline, there's a number. You call the number, and uh, it's supposed to be operated by uh, by a third party external to the bank, I believe. Uh, so to, to the best of my memory, I talked to somebody outside of the bank. And um, and they just take down your concerns. That's it. You don't, you don't really um, – you have to express, you know, a fairly complex issue to somebody who doesn't really understand what it is but, and, and then hope that, that somebody will get back to you. It felt a little bit like kind of screaming into the dark. Uh, but eventually, uh, actually pretty quickly, um, I was contacted by, uh, by the legal department, by the compliance department. So that, that, that part of it worked pretty well. And when did you go to the SEC? Because I imagine once you made that hotline call, you were probably already a, a, at least a little bit worried about your job at Deutsche. Yeah, so uh, my, 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 um, my strategy there was to, was to go in parallel, uh, essentially to be safe. And I, I, I wasn't sure whether I would be instantly fired after going to the hotline. There was always that, that concern. Mm-hmm. So I made sure to go almost simultaneously to the SEC with the information that I had uh, and to the hotline at the same time. So effectively, it was as though these two, you know, we're talking about March 2011, these two things were being, were, were being raised, and, and I later realized that there were ongoing investigations both inside the bank and at the SEC, you know, a year prior. Uh, but at the time, I thought I was starting investigations in both. There were other whistleblowers. And- yes. I, I, as far as I understand it, I've never spoken to, um, uh, to Matthew Simpson, who is, I believe, he is the other whistleblower. And apparently there was an, yet another whistleblower before that. So we know of at least three, three people who, who raised and, concerns there. Uh, and but you yeah, all I, were I, identifying the same thing? Uh, apparently, I didn't. I, I've never seen the uh, the concerns that uh, 
that Matthew Simpson or the third person uh, raised, and there, I, I believe there might have been other whistleblowers as well. They might have raised issues that are related or similar. Um, these businesses are very complex. You could use, there are lots of different risks that you can look at. Um, the trades were, uh, you know, I'm going to be a little bit technical here. These were bespoke levered super senior mm-hmm. trades, which is an animal that I, I didn't really think existed before I, I joined Deutsche Bank. So there were very there were different kinds of risks there, and so I wouldn't be surprised if other whistleblowers uh, raised concerns over other valuation issues such as Quanto. Uh, I've heard that that was an issue that which I did not raise. I talked specifically about the gap the gap option, but. Uh, but there were other issues with this portfolio. Also, there are other portfolios that um, that were kind of related and might might have been similar, maybe CDS portfolios or other CDO portfolios that had similar issues in them, possibly. So this is all speculative. I don't really know what the other whistleblowers raised, what what concerns they raised. But uh, presumably, since since uh, Matthew Simpson or, or the other whistleblower, assuming his, Matthew Simpson is. is uh, was also given a whistleblower award. They they also contributed to the to the investigation. So it's March of 2011. You've just gone to the SEC. Uh, I'm going to be slightly facetious. How quickly were you shown the door at Deutsche Bank? Uh, well, it took a few months actually. So uh, I I was fired in 2011, and uh, in between that, uh, I was actually, you know, I, I became I, I was introduced to the. Uh, to the head of, of uh, compliance regulatory affairs at the bank in New York, uh, Robert Rice, and he, he was the one who was handling the investigation. There was also an outside law firm, uh, Fried Frank, that was, so I guess they were in, formally in charge of the investigation in cooperation with the uh, compliance department. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what, um, what that means in terms of the, what, what the regulatory requirements are in terms of an uh, outside law firm uh, investigating this. But uh, in the court, during this during these next few months, I, I uh, Robert Rice and the the compliance department introduced me to a number of other uh, executives, uh, mostly in the uh, finance division. So mo- mostly uh, accountants uh, to explain, or at least they, they claimed it was to explain to me what uh, what was being done inside the bank. Uh, in fact, those meetings were more I felt more a way of trying to 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 glean. What I understood, what I knew, uh, and to help them get a leg up on the on the um, mm. SEC investigation, and also to prevent me or to discourage me implicitly, discourage me from going to the SEC. That's that's how I interpret those meetings. Uh, they certainly, I, I certainly was not satisfied uh, with the answers that I was given, and, and I, I don't think that was, uh, I don't think an investigation that uh, with, with the purpose of uh, protecting shareholders would have been conducted differently. Completely, in, in 180 degrees. The, 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 instead of instead of trying to download the information and trying to uh, uh, essentially uh, blunt my concerns, they should have they should have gone along and gotten to the bottom of it and corrected the what, what was wrong. And, and I'm pretty sure they they were trying not to do that. When you were fired, what did they say the reason was? Uh, they just said that it was my job was being moved to Berlin. In fact, Deutsche Bank was opening a quant center for uh, its risk department in Berlin. Uh, and I had previously, before I blew the whistle, I had been offered a job there. Uh, and I expressed an interest in, in moving to Berlin. So, so this, was, this was clearly just uh, an excuse. But uh, nobody ever said anything about conduct. I, I had, um, the reviews that I had uh, were positive in the time that I spent at Deutsche Bank. So there, there was really no reason 
uh, other than uh, I, I can see no reason other than my whistleblowing. Did you regret uh, going to the SEC at that point? Uh, no, I, I, I thought I did the right thing, and I thought that, that the right thing would happen, that justice would be, would be uh, served there. Well, let's skip ahead then, because you were just in the news at the end of last month because there was this huge um, whistleblower award for you and your fellow whistleblowers, and uh, you were offered several million dollars as a reward for shining a light on this, and uh, you didn't accept it. So explain to us how that award came about and whether you're surprised by that and how you made this decision that, as we said in the beginning, seems almost unfathomable for a person to make. During the years since, you know, I started, I I blew the whistle in spring 2011. Really, I blew the whistle before that because I, I started raising the concerns months before that. I gradually became not only attached to the case, but also attached to the to the idea of, of seeing justice uh, carried out. And, and after I was fired, this case was also the case of my career. So, so you could say that my life became completely, I wouldn't say dependent, but, but it, it became you know, very, very much attached to this case. And, uh, and so in the next few years, I, I pushed the SEC along. Uh, at some points, um, you know, there was there was a point where we heard that, that where there were rumors that the the, the case is about to be closed. Uh, this was in 2012, and so we went and, and worked with the Financial Times to get the story out, and that really kind of gave gave uh, gave new life to this case. Uh, so I you know I owe a lot to the uh, to the Financial Times reporters in this case, uh, who did a great job. And and ultimately, over these years, I became you know I became I also became familiar with the the lawyers, the Deutsche Bank lawyers who went in and out of the SEC. I followed you know I I was forced to follow their their uh, their career paths. You know I read Matt Taibbi's piece in 2011 about uh, the SEC's internal whistleblower Darcy Flynn. Uh, that's a story that I think hasn't gotten the the attention that it deserved, and you know in which he blew the whistle. To uh, Robert Kuzami, the uh, who was head of enforcement and at the SEC and previously was uh, was Deutsche Bank's uh, uh, general counsel, I believe, for North America. At the same time, um, I followed. You know, Robert Rice was appointed. You know, went from being the head of compliance to being the chief counsel at the SEC. So, so I, I, I realized that Alvin Dole was working working against me and really was working against the the, um, the, the rule of law in the United States. So the decision not to take the award was essentially a protest against this revolving door concept between the SEC and Deutsche Bank. But that kind of throws up a question. Do you think that there's a problem with whistleblowing in general? Or is it something specific because Deutsche had so many people at the securities watchdog? So so I think... I, I do think that that uh, the problem, the revolving door problem, uh, and uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word revolving door. I think that the justice for sale problem is is widespread. It goes beyond just Deutsche Bank. Uh, it, it was especially bad here, but I think it happens quite. A, unfortunately, it happens quite a bit today. So it's not a problem uh, necessarily with whistleblowing. It's a problem with with uh, with the justice system. I think justice and money don't mix very well. And I, I, there, there are too many, too many loopholes through which it makes its way into the system, uh, not just in securities law, but in, in securities law it's especially bad. 
so, so I think my case was especially bad. It was especially blatant. The fact that the victims were clearly the shareholders. There was no third party. You know, there, there was no way to. I can't see any way to argue that the shareholders benefited from this, uh, from the inflation of this portfolio. I think this is like Enron. The, the, the shareholders are clearly, to me, the primary uh, victims. I was just going to say there is a devil's advocate type argument where you could say, well, all right, so Deutsche Bank didn't value the gap risk in the way that it should have, uh, but it ended up not suffering catastrophic losses anyway, right? So it made it through, and its assumptions about the gap risk turned out to be correct, and in effect, it saved its shareholders a lot of pain. Again, that's just a devil's advocate argument for you, but it does get to the heart of the point that Joe made earlier, which is these are really complex things, and you're making a lot of assumptions about them, and right and wrong aren't always that clear-cut. Yeah, so I think uh, this devil's advocate um, argument is very important, uh, and I've heard it a number of times, and I think the answer to it is uh, you, can look at, you can see the answer in the stock price. So the stock price was in 2010, after the financial crisis, was uh, north of $70, and now it's, uh, you know, it reached something like 12 or 13. I'm not sure where it is today, but, you know, there are rumors about Deutsche Bank may possibly uh, requiring a bailout. So it's hard to argue that Deutsche Bank didn't take some of those losses and just spread it out over subsequent years. And in those years that, that it, it hid those losses, it, the executives took large bonuses at the expense of the shareholders. So you're arguing that the the ill fortunes we've seen of Deutsche Bank in recent years and the stock price is down about 90% from its pre-crisis peak is not just some secondary result of poor conditions for European banking, but also to some extent a direct function of what you see you saw as the behavior of the people internally to, as you say, uh, misstate the value of the assets on the books. Uh, absolutely, I think that's. It's not the only. Obviously, you know, this gap risk was just one of many things. And yes, the weakness in Europe, in the European economy, I'm sure, did not help Deutsche Bank. But if you look at some of the other banks, so the U.S. banks, for example, they didn't suffer the same kind of uh, losses over the subsequent quarters. Deutsche Bank has a big has a big presence in North America. It's a global bank, so you wouldn't expect it should just be exposed only to Europe. Also, I want to address one point that uh, Tracy brought up, uh, which is, well, the, you know, the, those losses that Deutsche Bank was correct in assessing that the gap risk losses are going to go away. Well, that's the, another way of saying of, of, of looking at this is to say that the value of the swaps was not was, was inflated. In other words, if you say that the gap option was worthless, was was worth zero, and it was just a, a temporary fluke around 2009 and 10 or 8, 9, 10, that its value was very high. You have to say the same thing about the swap itself. So the swap and the option go hand in hand. So you, you can't make an argument about one without making the same argument about the other. What I see is ha- as having happened at Deutsche Bank in those years is that they invented quite a bit of capital on the, on the balance sheet, and that, and that capital that they invented, they dissipated it over the subsequent quarters. How much was the Deutsche Bank scandal that you identified uh, to do with the complexity of these leveraged super senior positions and how much of it had to do with a cultural problem at the bank. Uh, I guess what I'm asking is, could we get a, a scandal 
on the same uh, sort of level for something like a certificate of deposit or like a much simpler type of product? Or is this something that you think could only happen in the deep, dark realms of the derivatives world? Um, I think certainly it's easier to, to hide losses when you have something that nobody really understands. So certainly when you have these, these um, I think they're called level three assets with, with very complex uh, models that understanding what the, what the contract itself is, you know, is very complicated, uh, it's easier to, to, to inflate the valuation. It's a lot harder to, to say that, uh, you know, some the stock of company XYZ, which is trading at $20, it's harder to market at, at $40. So what are you doing now? So you've re- renounced this uh, reward. Do you feel that you've made a um, the statement that you tried to make by not accepting this money that the punishment of Deutsche Bank shouldn't fall on the shareholders? Do you feel like you've made that statement? And where to next for you? Uh, so I, I think it's, more, it's, it's not so much a statement as much as just a refusal to be part of that. So I just don't want to, you know, if, if, if you saw, you know, if you saw the, the analogy that I like to give is if, 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 you, if you saw somebody getting mugged in the street in New York and then you call the cops and then the cop shows up and the, the cop is actually the guy who just, who just mugged the victim and he mugs the victim again and then throws you a couple of dollars out of the wallet so that you'd shut up, you probably wouldn't do that. And so I, I don't think what I did is so extraordinary. I think if people... If, if you see, the, see it the way I do, uh, which, is, which is as, you know, the victim being robbed again and the award money being sort of hush money, then, then it's, it's, what I did is really not, not, not extraordinary at all. In terms of uh, the, uh, the impact or the outcome, you know, I, th- I think it's, you know, the, the, the fight to, to get the justice system cleaned up, if you will, to, to, to have you know, to have the same the same kind of justice for the powerful and the connected uh, as everybody else, I think that's that's a really long term struggle. So I, I don't think I'm going to make by myself. I'm not going to make a difference, but I do think that uh, that I'm going to make a small difference, and hopefully uh, there will be more people like me, and then hopefully we'll, we will make a difference together. Uh, what's next for me? Uh, you know, I've rebuilt my career in a, in a fintech company. I'm very proud of. Uh, of the work we're doing, uh, the name of the company is Bond IT. Um, we we have our product uh, aims to to improve uh, the world of investing, bond investing specifically. Uh, so we work with uh, with some of the major financial institutions in the world to help uh, construct uh, smart portfolios, smart bond portfolios for their uh, uh, retail and private banking uh, customers. Would you ever return to Wall Street? Could you ever return to Wall Street? You know, I think I think the answer is yes, I would, and I also think yes, I could. I just think that you know, it, it's it's a matter of it's a matter of a change in, in in culture and perception. I think I think the fact that what I did seems extraordinary, it's conceivable that it could happen. That that the culture and the, the management uh, in in some of these major financial institutions would be uh, more. Uh, aligned with that, more aligned with the shareholders, more aligned with with the rule of law, then I think um, then I think I, I could very well find myself uh, working again on Wall Street. It may sound like you know like uh, like a dream uh, when I'm saying it now, but I, I think you know stranger things have happened. All right, uh, let's leave it there, uh, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. On. 
So, Joe, I thought that was a really fascinating story, and I think the thing that emerges the most from it is probably the courage of a guy who kind of knew he was probably going to lose his job by blowing the whistle on this, and then the idea that he gave up millions of dollars on principle. Uh, I like to think I would do the same thing, but let's be realistic, how many of us actually would? Yeah, um, you know, he said he didn't think that that was a really extraordinary thing, and I did like his framing that essentially if you consider what he blew the whistle on to be deleterious to shareholders and his whistleblower reward would also come from shareholders that he was, as he put it, participating in the theft. I still think that is a way of framing it that is quite extraordinary that very few people would get to that way of thinking about it when uh, given the opportunity to collect so much money. The other thing that struck me is, uh, you know, it warms my heart to talk about all these uh, financial crisis relics like leverage super seniors and quanto mm-hmm. risk and correlation books and things like that. But it throws up this question you know, many years after the financial crisis, it feels like we've gone some way towards tackling some of the complexity in banking, but I'm not sure we've done that much to actually fix some of the cultural problems that people like Eric have identified. I totally agree with that. One of the things I thought was interesting was this kind of reminds me a little bit of the discussion that we had several weeks ago with the professor who say uh, uh, Lehman mm. could have been mm-hmm. saved. And when we go back to these stories, a common thread, of course, is that during periods of extreme volatility and with these complicated financial products, there's often some debate about how they're valued at any given moment. So I like the way he clarified his take, which was that this was not really, in his view, a debate about which model to use. And of course, you could have agree. Um, disagreements about that, but sort of fundamentally the building blocks of the model, just acknowledging what you, sort of like uh, agreeing on a common set of facts to go into the model. And so being a little bit, in his view, more clear than mere sort of disagreement about what Or deconstructing your conclusion, right? Right, right. All right. Um, Well, on that uh, happy note, shall we uh, deconstruct this conversation? Sounds good. All right. Uh, this is another episode of Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can find me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Thanks for listening. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.